I assume you're aware of this well, uh, that there is a new Buzz Lightyear movie coming out. This is probably old news for you at this point. Yeah, I mean, for the past, I want to say, 30 years, I've often been wondering, like, how did Buzz Lightyear come to be? So I think it'll be really interesting to find out what's his story. Yeah, Actually, what I love about this new Buzz Lightyear movie is Chris Evans, the star, replacing my man Tim Allen had to take to twitter to clarify that it's not the backstory of the doll that we see in the previous toy story movies it's not the fictional universe within the toy story universe of buzz lightyear and what is it star command it's the story of the actual astronaut who in the world of toy story inspired the fictional character buzz lightyear within the fictional world of toy story is do i have it right that's right and this is so funny because when the first toy story came out these were clearly meant to be archetypal characters you know woody is a cowboy buzz is a spaceman and that's all you need to know they just represent two kinds of entertainment uh one of which sort of in the popular consciousness eclipsed the other yeah two genres right like the andy's more interested in buzz lightyear because he represents like the new the future yeah space and shit and yeah woody woody is like an old world kind of toy but also like it it absolutely did not matter what buzz like what his universe was it doesn't make any sense because buzz lightyear is like some kind of astronaut who fights aliens and stuff like there's a whole buzz lightyear universe that we see in toy story with like the little green guys that he sees in the gumball machine or whatever it is the toy machine at the arcade there's like emperor zerg all of that stuff and now you're telling me buzz lightyear is actually inspired by a real astronaut it doesn't make any sense in talking like this by the way i feel a little bit like donald trump when he used to do those vines where he'd be like They're remaking Indiana Jones without Harrison Ford. You can't do that. And now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? But it's just incredible the extent to which like this fan service that is increasingly devouring most of mass and popular culture you know, where everything is a sequel, everything is a reboot, everything is leveraging an existing property. We don't think of movies anymore as movies. We think of them as franchises. And that's even the language that's percolated down to our everyday parlance about them. It's incredible in the wake of all that, how these things can't even honor the source material or be like at all consistent with it. Like they can't even do that. What's funny to me is that in the original Toy Story, you were supposed to take it as a given that Buzz Lightyear's mythology did not matter. Everything he represented was supposed to have been so archetypal, so generic, that you would not care. And now, 30 years later, it's, it's got to the point where it's like, well, well, actually, uh, what if what if you did care about this thing that is purposely meant to not be cared about? <laughs> I, I saw I saw a tweet where someone said something like, quote, tweeting like news about the Buzz Lightyear thing. And, and they said something like, we've reached the ripping copper wiring out of the walls stage of American culture. And I think that's quite succinct. I do want to talk just briefly about culture because I've been thinking about it a bit, you know? You've been thinking about culture, Will, really? Yeah, I, culture is on my brain. We've taken it as axiomatic on this podcast that the old adage taken up by Andrew Breitbart that politics is downstream from culture, we've taken it as axiomatic that that adage is not true. We've taken it as a given that politics is, in fact, not downstream from culture. It's quite the other way around. 
I would like to interrogate that a little bit using two examples. Here's an example of a case in which politics are not downstream from culture. You're, you're, are, is this is this the part of the podcast where you tell me like the reconciliation bill would have passed in its six trillion form if the Buzz Lightyear movie had come out sooner? No, I think the reason the reconciliation bill hasn't passed is uh, is uh, is because of wokeness, folks. <laughs> wokeness. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Something that I cannot escape on my cursed social media feeds is the new Marvel movie Eternals. I thought it was coming out tomorrow. It turns out it's not coming out for another week. Are you serious? I thought it was already out. I am pleading with the Disney company. Please put this movie out right now so I can stop hearing about it. Please do whatever it takes. My social media feeds are clogged with people litigating this movie. And one post in particular that I saw today... So apparently people have been, quote, review bombing, unquote, the Internet Movie Database. You know, they've been going on the Internet Movie Database and giving it one star just by the truckload because that's how politics are litigated these days. Yeah, politics is culture and culture is just competing consumer reviews of different commercial properties. Right. So it's it's a victory if the Eternals movie, which as you may know, contains a certain amount of LGBTQ plus representation. Uh, not a lot, but a little bit, apparently. <laughs> and uh, just enough that they can cut it when it's released in China. But, you know, there's some in there. Enough that the studio and their marketing people can, like, try to polarize reception of the movie, like, on that axis, basically. As well as it has, apparently, the most diverse cast that one of these Marvel movies has yet. Which, of course, the Disney publicity department would like to convince convince you as a historic landmark uh there have been movies made before the marvel cinematic universe i just want to point that out and many of them were able to plant this flag a lot earlier than this one but yeah, nevertheless it's a real, it's real shifting the goalposts it's like it's like how it's like how the guinness book of world records used to be these really straightforward fun things where it was like you know fastest tallest strongest whatever and now it's like fastest 100 meter dash while balancing lumps of sugar or something like that it's just like inventing new criteria to declare something a record it's like movies were made before the marvel cinematic universe and i'm not really sure you get to treat this as like a big win yeah it's funny i mean a hundred years ago oscar michelle was you know expending a bunch of blood sweat and tears to try to address the african-american experience on screen through whatever resources he could scrounge up and now a hundred years later we finally have diversity in a marvel cinematic universe movie i mean what what an accomplishment what an achievement <laughs> 25 movies in anyway so there was a tweet that was pointing out that all these gamer gators all of these q honors all these bad people were review bombing the russian movie. russian bots i assume as well russian bots and one of the stars of the film kumail nanjiani posted looks like we're upsetting the right people eternals opens november 5th <laughs> now well we should we should point out that uh this was the actor who got uh who got jacked a couple of years ago <laughs> and one of your tweets about him getting jacked was featured in like a hollywood reporter article or in some in some write-up about the backlash he received to getting jacked so your hands yeah, are cyber clean here. Him. Yeah. <laughs> I have no ill will towards him. It's fine. Anyway, this, though, looks to me like an example of how limited people's political horizons are. We're going to do whatever the liberal version of triggering the libs is by going to see 
Eternals on November 5th. Right, it recalls what happened around the Ghostbusters movie a few years ago where there was a 100% non-ironic article on, I think, BuzzFeed that, like, it it adopted this tongue-in-cheek posture, but there was nothing actually tongue-in-cheek about it. It was called something like 10 Nakedly Capitalist Ways to Support the New Ghostbusters Movie. And then it was like, fight the right by going to buy merchandise. Go see the movie twice. Just all these different variations of, like, give your money to a large corporation. And that is supposed to be a political act in some way. So that's a case of politics not being downstream from culture. I feel pretty secure in saying that. But I'm not quite sure where to place the Dave Chappelle discourse, which is now entering its second month. I love how I love how you said that like a meteorologist. You're like, <laughs> like, like the Chappelle discourse continues to blow in from the east. This Dave Chappelle special seems to have launched something resembling a genuine reckoning on the issues of transgender representation, as well as the limits of acceptable discourse on this topic. It seems to me from my vantage point that this special and the discourse around it will actually be genuinely consequential in terms of the sorts of things that are greenlit, the sorts of entertainments that companies will invest in and will get behind. I'm not sure what form this will take exactly. I'm not going to predict exactly how, but the backlash and the discourse around this special seems so strong that I think it genuinely will be influential. And so I guess my question is, what can you say about a society where culture genuinely is one of the central forums for these debates, and where a cultural product like the Dave Chappelle special actually genuinely has become like a focal point, a lightning rod for a debate like this that genuinely will have real-world consequences. Well, the question doesn't really have much weight to me, because when you say it has real-world consequences, what's going to be greenlit or not greenlit by studios and and things Mm -hmm. like that? You're still talking about what TV is going to be produced and consumed, which to me is just a far less important thing, or rather it has far... It's important in some senses, I suppose, but it it has far less political weight than I feel like the kind of dominant cultural paradigm thinks it does. But if people only live and only debate in the cultural sphere, then at what point does that become like the only sphere? At what point does that sphere become influential on the rest? Well, I think I think the question is is an interesting one, but I think I, I would frame all of this a little bit differently. I think politics kind of still happens regardless of whether people are aware of it or not, regardless of whether it's possible to be engaged with it in a collective or a democratic way. The way I see the kind of cultural turn where culture becomes the locus of, you know, much or or most political, you know, engagement for many people is that that's what happens when the points of genuine engagement have been severed. When the nexus between any kind of democratic polity and the people who wield power and make decisions, uh, such as that linkage has ever existed, obviously, you know, I don't want to idealize too much what existed before the 1980s and 90s. But I think the political class and political decision making have become so removed and so unresponsive and so unaccountable to popular opinion, let alone, you know, genuine popular engagement, mass engagement of any kind that, you know, this is kind of what you get. Political energy still exists and it has to go somewhere. When you have the largest mass protests in in decades or, or possibly ever, 
And then the political system is so atrophied, so ossified, so sclerotic that absolutely nothing changes. There are no legislative changes. That energy has to go somewhere. And so it gets channeled back into culture. It gets channeled into a culture war because that's the only point of engagement left. And, you know, I'm thinking about this a lot this week because, you know, as we record this, there's, you know, a further paring down of this reconciliation bill. And it really is just astonishing uh, how little the Democratic Party is able to do, how little institutional uh, liberalism is equipped or willing to do, even when uh, in control of all three branches of government. They're unwilling to do, unable to do, unequipped to do things that would be immensely popular, things that would be in their electoral best interest to do. The incentive structures of, you know, lawmaking and, and politicking are so torqued and so twisted by the apparatus of corporate influence that captures both of America's major political parties that, you know, the Democratic Party has effectively negotiated its own agenda down to less than $2 trillion from what was already a compromise of $3.5 which in turn represented a paring down of a, of a much more ambitious agenda that they were going to do before. While the planet is burning, there's a plague that's still killing people. The billionaire class is once again liquidating the incomes of the middle and the working classes. Mitt Romney and Kirsten Sinema are posting like cutesy videos on the internet. That's the level of remove of the political class from everyone else. So of course culture becomes central in an environment like that. Politics always exists. It's always happening. And, you know, people are political animals. But when there are no points for kind of genuine uh, democratic engagement, when you have an increasingly kind of post-democratic society, political energies have to go somewhere. And so I think they get funneled back into the culture war, which increasingly, like as you were just saying, is something that in turn, you know, big studios, big commercial enterprises, big corporations, it's something they're aware of. And you know, then that gets monetized as well. And, and the cycle just kind of repeats ad infinitum. by a thousand men desired by one woman the third man hanging is too good for him nothing is too good for the third man her man was the third man the man on every woman's lips Vienna 1950 a city fearful of its present, uncertain of its future. Vienna, the once gay capital of a light-hearted people. Here in the shadows of its palaces and ruins is told with tenderness, drama, and suspense. The story of the third man. There was a third man there. All right, Luke, I want you to look down at our list of Patreon subscribers and tell me would you really feel any pity if one of those dots stopped moving forever? <laughs> Luke, if I offered you 20,000 pounds for every dot that stopped, would you really, old man, tell me to keep my money? Or would you calculate how many dots you could afford to spare? Free of income tax, old man. Free of income tax. The only way you can save money nowadays. That's right, folks. Our movie on this episode is 1949's The Third Man, directed by Carol Reed, starring Joseph Cotton, Alita Valley, and Orson Welles. And one of the great one of the great films, for God's sake, The Third Man. 
You know, what can you say? I had so much fun watching this movie. I first saw it when I was maybe seven or eight years old with my late grandfather. It was his favorite film. And from what I remember, I enjoyed watching it with him. But I so wish that I could have watched it with him again years later in full appreciation of what an incredible film this is. I've probably seen it three or four times already, or I had before I watched it again uh, this week. And I had such a good time. I'm so excited to talk about it. I probably saw it for the first time, yeah, when I was maybe 10 or so, maybe 10 or 11. I would have seen it with my dad and didn't leave a huge impression on me when I was 10 or 11. I think because the concept of post-war Europe was not not something I had a whole lot of context <laughs> it was, for. <laughs> it was a little bit, it was inchoate in your mind at that age, not fully developed. Yeah, although I, th- I think it's safe to say I've come to appreciate the movie more over the years. <laughs> you know, at the risk of sounding hyperbolic, I don't think there's been another case where a movie's musical score has better articulated the film's worldview. Much of this film, and I I think it's good and reasonable to start the discussion by bringing up the music, because much of the movie is scored to this very iconic piece of zither music, which is very jaunty, perhaps even a bit silly sounding, you know, and unlike any other piece of music in the annals of film noir, and It'd be very easy to have a typical melodramatic score that tells you when you're supposed to feel happy and sad and indignant or whatever. And in fact, I believe the American financier David O. Selznick was really pushing for a more conventional score. But it's amazing to have every scene, no matter the emotional impact of the scene, scored to this exact same piece of jaunty music. And this is pretty overwhelmingly a bleak landscape and a a bleak story. There's something about the music set against this. It's almost as if the music is saying, ah, and so it goes. You know, you've got a character here, Harry Lime, who is the scum of the earth, a murderer, somebody who is stealing penicillin from hospitals and diluting it and selling it on the black market and killing people. And then to just have this musical score going, ah, yes, you know, that's the way things are. You know, when I was trying to think of what is the political dimension of this movie, what would be that angle of it that we would discuss? I, I think that's a lot of it, don't you? Right. So this score, uh, this Zither score, was written by a composer called Anton Karas, and apparently it appeared in the movie completely by chance. He was playing it in a restaurant, and, you know, someone involved with the film, possibly Carol Reed, stumbled upon it, and that's how it ended up in the movie. So an absolutely perfect happenstance. The score is an absolutely essential part of the movie. I think the other thing that's essential to what the movie is doing is its visual sensibility. The canted camera angles, the tilted camera angles that you see throughout. This movie, if you haven't seen it, is kind of the quintessential film noir. It's a shadowy black and white mystery set in post-war Vienna. It features innumerable shots of winding streets, you know, buildings covered in shadows, things like that. It's set, it was filmed and is set during the stream strange interregnum between the Second World War and the Cold War. Vienna was divided um, into different jurisdictions. So the film is set in this fractured remnant of old Europe. You know, there's scenes where characters are walking down the streets and there's still rubble. There's still rationing. There's still rationing. There's still a lot of suffering connected with the war. But because of the way the film is shot uh, with all of these tilted angles, which reminded me very much of German expressionist films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which has those great shots of the rooftops in the village 
where all the all the angles and dimensions are, are kind of warped. Uh, it very much looks like that. So all of that makes the geography of Vienna seem very confused and labyrinthine, which makes sense given the internal politics of post-war Vienna and its overlapping and sort of confused jurisdictions with the Russians, the British, the Americans and the French, each occupying different quarters of the city. And then there being this confused zone in the middle where jurisdiction is blurred. And so both the sound of the movie and also the way it's shot complement the narrative of the film, which, you know, like a lot of noirs... Is one in which, you know, nothing is as it seems. Uh, you know, the protagonist, played by Joseph Cotton, Holly, steps into this world where everybody seems to be lying to him. It's completely unclear what's actually going on. Everything is disorienting. And, you know, as you're seeing all this and as you're following Holly through Vienna and partaking in this mystery, the whole time you have this zither score, which manages to be kind of darkly sardonic and somehow playful but menacing at the same time. The film would still be good without the musical score and without the creative way it's shot. But I think those things are what make it a great film. I mean, one of the greatest films. There's something about that score that feels very post-Auschwitz, post-Hiroshima. I'm not going to say the horrible cliche that Vienna is like another character in this movie, but uh, I think I think it would be accurate to say that Vienna represents a kind of state of being. Uh, it's important that this was once a great place. There's a bit of opening narration that states, I never knew the old Vienna before the war with its Strauss music, its glamour and easy charm. I really got to know it in the classic period of the black market. There's a sense that this Vienna is a place where all history and morality and all meaning is just sort of breaking down. And so you've got all these tragic, pitiful people running around in front of these huge, crumbling buildings and monuments that represent history and tradition that doesn't really matter anymore. Yeah, I want to read from two different writers here about the role of Vienna in the film. The first is a writer named Bridget Timmerman. She's an Austrian writer. She wrote a book called The Third Man's Vienna. And, you know, she points out that in Britain, uh, you know, this is a British film. And, you know, people watch this from a British perspective. And it's just a film about, you know, friendship and betrayal, but received very differently and, and meant something very different to Austrians and to people in Vienna. Um, you know, for her, the film is about Austria's troubled relationship with its own past. She writes, people did not want to be reminded they had gone through the worst and they didn't want to talk about it. She compares it to America's attitude to Vietnam and she says, it was suppressed, it wasn't talked about, it was covered up. It takes one or two generations to deal with, with such terrible trauma. Um, the other writer I want to quote from is uh, William Cook, who wrote about the third man in The Guardian uh, some years ago. And one of the things he notes is that, uh, you know, the film was very well received in most places, but it was pretty coldly received or, or lukewarmly received in Vienna uh, anyway. It only played for a few weeks. And William Cook writes, Vienna's ambivalence about the third man betrays its ambivalence about its heritage. Was Vienna conquered or liberated by the Allies? Was the Anschluss an invasion or an alliance? Were the Austrians the first victims of the Third Reich or its first partners in crime? The third man is Vienna's guilty secret lurking in the shadows like Harry Lyme. So, I mean, I, I feel like the cliche, uh, which you've, you very slyly uh, invoked while also distancing yourself from that Vienna is a character in this movie. Uh, I think we can get away with that one here. Yeah, I guess I can't have it both ways, can I? <laughs> I can't have my cake and eat it, too. 
I don't know a lot about the genesis of the film. I do know that it is, of course, based on a book by Graham Greene. Uh, what do you know? It is based on a novella that Graham Greene wrote, although it's important to note that Graham Greene wrote this novella with the intention for it to become a movie. And I think for him, the film is really the, def- the definitive version. I-, I think the novella probably really only came out because the movie was so successful. He wrote the book as source material for the screenplay, and it wasn't originally intended to be read, although I expect that it's very much worth reading. Now, in the New York Times archives, I found an article about the film that Graham Greene himself wrote on March 19th, 1950, um, where he talks about the genesis of the movie. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Originally, you know, he was approached to write something that was much more like a political thriller, a kind of Cold War movie. There was a plot point originally, which made it into the screenplay and then was cut from the movie about the Russians kidnapping Anna, the heroine of the film. So it originally might have been a very different kind of movie. Now, Graham Greene's account of how the story came to be is another one of those things which to me just adds greatly to the magic of this movie. So many different things had to come together to produce The Third Man. It's in some ways quite an accidental success. Graham Greene writes, Most novelists, I suppose, carry around in their heads or in their notebooks the first ideas for stories that have never come to be written. Sometimes one turns them over after many years and thinks regretfully that they would have been good once, in a time now dead. So, twenty years back, on the flap of an envelope, I had written an opening paragraph. Quote, I had paid my last farewell to Harry a week ago when his coffin was lowered into the frozen February ground so that it was with incredulity that I saw him pass by without a sign of recognition among the host of strangers in the Strand. So this very evocative but incredibly ambiguous paragraph that Graham Greene wrote some 20 years before the movie on the back of a napkin is how the third man was born. Just as a kind of fragment of an idea brimming with possibility but yet to be executed. And teaming up with this incredible cast and with uh, Carol Reed, the director, boy, did they ever execute it. Victims? Don't be melodramatic. Look down there. Would you really feel any pity if one of those dots stopped moving forever? If I offered you 20,000 pounds for every dot that stopped, would you really, old man, tell me to keep my money? Or would you calculate how many dots you could afford to spend? Free of income tax, only. The protagonist is Holly Martins, played by Joseph Cotton, an American author of Pulp Fiction. He has been invited to Vienna by his old friend Harry Lyme, but when Martins arrives, he finds that Harry Lyme is dead and freshly buried. Or is he? Uh, He's told that Harry was hit by a car when crossing the street, but the more he asks around, the more suspicious he becomes, the more inconsistent the story becomes. I'm not going to get into all the twists and turns of the plot, all of the uh, kooky characters who drift in and out. One of the key characters, though, is a British officer played by Trevor Howard, who's leading an investigation into Harry Lyme, tells Martins that Harry Lyme was not the man he thought he knew, that he was involved in this underground penicillin smuggling operation that left so many people dead. There's another key player, an actress named Anna, played by Alita Valley, who was Harry Lyme's lover, who may know more about his whereabouts than she's letting on, uh, and who Joseph Cotton also falls in love with. Of course, the other key player uh, is Harry Lyme, who does re-enter the picture at about the 70-minute mark with one of the most iconic entrances in cinema, 
Orson Welles, uh, in an interview with Peter Bogdanovich, was talking about how, you know, it's the easiest part he ever played. It's like, <laughs> you always want those parts where, for the first hour, they keep saying, where's where's Inspector Wu? Where's Inspector Wu? Where's Inspector Wu? And then all of a sudden, just before the intermission, it's Inspector Wu. In the scene where he enters, if you know this is coming, it's so exciting. And Orson Welles didn't even have to do anything. He just steps out of the shadows. He doesn't even have any lines in the scene. And he just kind of grins at Joseph Cotton. And that's all that happens. Then he disappears into the shadows. And then there's this incredible shot where you see his shadow receding and Joseph Cotton chases it because he's literally chasing shadows. Harry Lyme has been such an enigma up to this point, such an omnipresent absence that the scene feels totally surreal, like it's not really happening or something, even though it is. This is just a random fun fact, but did you know that this is one of the only movies where you see Orson Welles' real nose in almost all of his other movies he's got some fake nose some you know heavy bit of makeup over his nose to like strengthen his nose citizen kane all those films he's mostly wearing a fake nose he was obsessed with that he thought his real nose looked terrible anyway you can see it for real here and i I think it looks fine (laughs) I i don't think he needed to be so insecure Anyway, in the last act of the film, Martins finds himself torn between his loyalty to Harry Lime, who he has that iconic Ferris wheel ride with, where Harry Lime sort of lays out his nihilistic philosophy, as well as his complicated feelings for Anna. Ultimately, he decides to drop the dime on Harry Lime to set Harry Lime up after visiting a hospital where he sees some of the children that have been affected by Harry Lyme's penicillin operation. This leads to an exciting chase in the sewers of Vienna that lead... uh, I, I don't know. I don't know why I even bother with spoiler warnings at this point. This we, is this is a problem we often confront on our podcast where we're like, oh, we shouldn't do a spoiler. And then it and it's like, wait, we're talking about a movie from 1949. I think I think it's OK to reveal the ending. Also, like, I'm sorry, you can't you can't do real serious film criticism. You know, the really good, the real good stuff without spoiling the movie. <laughs> Folks, it's one of the most iconic movies ever made. You know, it. Harry Lime, he's got his fingers up through the sewer grate. Famous iconic scene gets killed. Joseph Cotton has sort of done the right thing, but also it kind of feels like the wrong thing because uh, from Alita Valley's perspective, you don't do that to your friend. And that ultimately leads to that tragic, equally iconic final shot, which I have to admit, I didn't watch the whole thing this time. That final shot where it's after Harry Lyme's funeral, Joseph Cotton is standing by his car just outside the funeral. Alita Valley walks in the distance up and then right past him, doesn't even acknowledge him. Listen, folks. I've seen this movie many times. I don't need to see the whole shot again. It's a very long shot. It's brilliant, though. Don't get me wrong. I thought you meant you didn't watch the whole movie this time. No, I watched the whole movie, except for the final shot. I saw the final shot, and then I was like, okay, I, I've, I've seen this. I don't, need to, I don't need to watch her walk from, <laughs> from the distance to now. <laughs> so there's a lot to say about all of these scenes. You know, here I think, again, the way the film is shot and the way it renders the geography of Vienna in this very confusing and labyrinthine way is, uh, is really important. One thing I noticed is that the three levels, you know, the street level up high in the Ferris wheel and then down below in the sewers are all visually a little bit different. And I think this is not accidental. 
Also, the way that Harry Lyme behaves is different depending on where he is. When he's on the street level, he's in perfect control. He's this rakish outlaw who can appear and disappear at will, who, you know, has total command of the city. Even as Joseph Cotton, the, you know, hack writer American, is constantly getting lost. And we, the viewers, are constantly getting lost because it's impossible to tell where anything is among all these angular surfaces and shadows. When Holly and Harry get on the Ferris wheel, and I suppose what's probably the most famous uh, scene in the movie, right as the Ferris wheel is reaching its apex... Right as they're getting as high as they can get, this is the moment where Harry opens the door uh, in this menacing way of the Ferris wheel car and threatens his friend. And then as soon as the Ferris wheel starts descending again, he withdraws the threat and says, oh, old boy, of course, I could never do that to you or something like that. And that's when he delivers this famous monologue, which we should just play in full. After all, it's not that awful. What the fella said... Mentally, for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So long, Holly. Now, this monologue is absolutely incredible, uh, even if everything Orson Welles says in it is total bullshit. Orson Welles contributed this monologue. There's some debate about what his influences were. Needless to say, uh, Orson Welles himself points out in the 1993 book, This is Orson Welles. Uh, when the picture came out, the Swiss very nicely pointed out to me that they've never made any cuckoo clocks. And, you know, further to that... <laughs> what the fuck? You know, the, the cl- clocks are, are native to the German Black Forest, apparently. And further to that, uh, a writer named John McPhee points out uh, that when the Borgias flourished in Italy, Switzerland had, quote, the most powerful and feared military force in Europe and did not adopt uh, this posture of uh, neutrality as state policy uh, until much later. I don't know. that That's a load of bullshit. I don't believe <laughs> word you said <laughs> but it doesn't matter because the monologue isn't meant to be harry lyme giving us you know an accurate rendering of history here he's laying out as you put it his nihilistic philosophy and this is where another line spoken on the ferris wheel this one by joseph cotton as holly i think matters a great deal he says to harry who used to believe in god this is really what orson welles's harry lyme is is replying to when he goes off about you know, the dots on the ground and, you know, what did brotherly love and democracy and peace get us, the cuckoo clock. And I think this sequence is as close to a thesis as the film really has. I think the power of Harry Lyme's monologue and of the film comes from the way that they symbolize the collapse of possibility that existed for Europeans at the beginning of the 20th century. The world of the third man is one where grand visions of a better future have collapsed. The city has been bombed out. It's fractured. You know, all that's left to do is to abandon the modernist optimism uh, with which the century began and trudge through the ruins and try to make do. That's the moral universe that uh, Harry Lyme now exists in. And that's also, again, where the zither theme comes in. Because as you already said, you know, it, it very much seems to be saying something like, ah, well, nevertheless... There's a resignation to it that is simultaneously very bleak and very playful. It very much captures uh, the character of Harry Lyme himself. Something else I noticed about the Ferris wheel scene uh, that I'd never noticed before is that even though most scenes of the movie, uh, which mostly the movie takes place kind of at the ground level or, you know, in, within buildings in Vienna, within rooms in Vienna, almost every scene begins with or incorporates these canted frames 
everything is slightly off kilter all the time. In the Ferris wheel scene, Carol Reed makes it deliberately, I think, very difficult for us to tell exactly where the camera is. In fact, if you watch closely, you can see the camera actually moving. And this is why this movie is, in- is incredible, because it's at this moment that Holly has to confront uh, his own feelings about uh, his friend Harry Lyme. And I feel like the ambiguous camera angle perfectly mirrors Holly's own ambiguous feelings towards Harry Lyme. He's not really sure if he's friend or villain. And then, you know, in this final sequence, just to say one more thing about the cinematography in this film, which I think is, as I said, is so central to what it's doing. Uh, In this final sequence in the sewers, Vienna has been confusing throughout this movie. Its geography and, and its geometry have been very disorienting. When you get down into the sewers, it's absolutely impossible to tell uh, where anything is. And the sewers are such a perfect contrast to the openness of the Ferris wheel and the theme park. On the Ferris wheel, you can see all of Vienna laid out before you. Harry Lyme is on top of the world. He looks down at the people on the ground and they're completely disposable to him. In this final sequence, nobody, uh, whether it's Harry or the people chasing him, nobody knows where anything is. We, the viewer, can't tell where anything is. You know, you'll see one shot with someone going around a corner and then another shot where it's completely impossible to tell where you are in relation to the previous thing you just saw. And in this scene, uh, for the first and only time in the film, Harry Lyme looks frightened. He looks disoriented. He looks powerless. The environments are suddenly claustrophobic. And in that famous shot where he nearly escapes to freedom and his fingers jut out through the grate, you know, I feel like that's Harry Lyme grasping one last time at the freedom and control he's enjoyed uh, up until this point, before the whole thing comes crashing down. One thing we didn't talk about at all is the uh, extremely funny B story where Holly uh, is given room and board in Vienna because some local Brit who organizes talks for like, you know, local patricians or whatever uh, offers to put him up if he gives a talk. About about his novels, yeah. What's funny, because it's not even really about his novels. Like, he's just a total hack writer, which is another really funny detail of this movie. Like, they could have <laughs> made him a great writer. And it's like, when you hear about his books, like, he clearly writes crap. It's, it's so important <laughs> that he's not a great writer, yeah. because on some level, he can't be better than Harry Lyme. <laughs> Obviously, he's a better person than Harry Lyme, but he's also kind of got to be in the gutter with him in some way, even if it's just artistically. Yeah, and so, you know, he's invited to give this talk which you know he's given only the broadest possible terms for you know what this talk is supposed to be about and of course he doesn't prepare for it at all and there's this amazing sequence where it looks like he's being kidnapped because he gets in a car which then like speeds down the road and the driver's not listening to him um and yeah it turns out he's just being taken to this book talk that he completely bombs that actually besides the ferris wheel is maybe my second favorite scene in the movie (laughs) (laughs) One of the reasons why this B-plot is funny is just the idea of having some sort of, like, cultural lecture series in the midst of all this squalor. (laughs) It's so half-assed, and it's so stupid, and it's so meaningless, but, like, you know, here it is, because, yeah, there is a patrician class in Vienna who want to feel they're doing something. Yeah, and it's so perfect that he's just obviously this hack writer who churns out garbage. Yeah, it doesn't even matter what the thing is. It doesn't matter who is there. All that matters is that there's this event that, that will keep the upper classes occupied. And feeling that they're plugged 
in with culture while in the meantime Vienna is like crumbling around them yeah what does that remind us of <laughs> yeah.